0: Well, this morning we're going to continue our study. Uh, We began going through John's first epistle. Uh, We looked at um, the purpose of John's writing, right? Was to uh, address some error that had crept into the church, uh, was causing people to be confused. It was starting to reveal, though, those who had, as we looked at last week, a profession of faith, but not a possession. Of faith, right? They, were, they embraced the, the community of Christ, but they didn't embrace the Christ of the community. And as a result of that, he mentions later on, they went out from us because they weren't of us. For if they had been of us, they'd still be with us. And so what John does in this epistle is he lays out some, some metrics, if you will, some, some ways that demonstrate that not only do we have a profession of faith, but we also have a possession of faith, that our lifestyles run parallel with this profession of faith in Christ so that, as he mentions later on, we, so that we might know that we have eternal life, right? That's, that's why he writes this letter. He says in chapter 5 and verse 13, These things were written that you might know that you have eternal life. And I just want you to know it's God's will for you to know that you know deep down in your knower that you have eternal life. Right? You, don't have to trust the, you don't have to trust an institution. You don't have to trust a, a, anybody other than God and God himself as manifest and declared through his word because of the work of Christ on the cross. And we see that Paul, John says, these things were written that you might know that you have eternal life. And so we see these, these metrics, if you will, ways of assessing ourselves so that we know that we have eternal life and, and again, as I said, it's God's will That we know God doesn't want us walking around Hoping, wondering, guessing, and gambling Hoping that we got this thing right Could you imagine growing up you know, Maybe some of you did Imagine growing up in a home though Where you didn't feel the security of your parents' love Where you, you, know, you, you always felt like You were one, one mistake away From being kicked out you know, you put a child, You grow up a child in that kind of an environment That's going to affect their whole life you put a child in another environment where they, they sense the love of their parents, they're, they're, they're convinced of the, of, the, of the security of their parents' love, that they know that nothing they're going to do is going to cause that parent's love to boot them out, you're going to have a child who's going to thrive, right? And, and so how much more, as, as children of God, does God want us to know deep down that we are his? And so God lays out for us a, a way of knowing in his words and metrics, so that we know that we have eternal life. And so John writes this letter so that we can, that we can know this. Today, as we, we jump into our text, we're, we're going to see a, a contrast of loves, a contrast of loves. John will show us what the child of God is commanded to love, and he's going to show us what the child of God is commanded not to love what we are called to love or commanded to love, and what we are commanded not to love. The title of my message is A Contrast of Loves. Let's pick up where we left off last week. Uh, 1 John 2, uh, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard, and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What John is doing here is he's referring back to an ongoing theme that he heard Jesus teach about quite often in those, in those earlier years when John walked with Jesus. John is saying here, what I'm telling you here is not something new. This isn't just some new Revelation. This is from the beginning. But he says, but some of those who are listening to this had just come to faith, and, and so it was new to them. But the command itself is not new. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In contrast, if you say you love God and you hate your brother, John says, you're not in the light, you're in You're in darkness. That kind of a person is, as we looked at last week, a person who has a profession of faith, but not a possession of faith. You see, the greatest way we can demonstrate our love for God is the way in which we demonstrate our love towards one another. Think about that. I mean, we are in, we've talked about this in the past, we are in union with Christ. And so is your brothers and sisters. So therefore, we also are in union with one another. And the greatest way that we can demonstrate our love for God is the way in which we demonstrate our love for one another. Think of it. What, what do we really do for God? I mean, God, we, we can't give him money. We can't give him offering. Like, what does God, God doesn't need Anything. Everything God needs is fulfilled in the person of Himself. And so the only way that we could possibly express our love for God and our commitment to God is the way in which we demonstrate it to other people. And that's why the scripture is so clear in pointing from, hey, listen, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We are reminded that the way that we treat others is a direct reflection of our love for God. We read in Matthew chapter 25 in, the, in, in those judgments where, Jesus, where it says, you know, um, uh, for Jesus is going to separate the people and put the, 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 uh, the sheep on the right and the, and the goats on the left, right? And he's going to say to those on the, on the right, Come enter into the joy of the Lord. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat i was thirsty and you gave me something to drink i was naked and you clothed me i was sick and you visited me i was in prison and you came to me and they're going to say lord when do we do that and he's going to say for as much as you've done it to the least of these my brethren you've done it unto me and then likewise he's going to say to those on his left depart from me for i was hungry you didn't give me something to eat I was thirsty, you didn't give me something to drink. I was, I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't, you didn't come visit me. And they're going to say, Lord, when did we see you? Naked or hungry or thirsty and in need and we didn't meet your need. And he's going to say, "Inasmuch as you didn't do this to the least of my brethren, you didn't do it for me. And so we see a direct connection of how we serve and love other people as an expression of our love and service to God. And John is laying this out all throughout his epistle this commandment to love one another. You know, the the depth of what John is saying here is not hidden deep in the text. There is some scripture that you need to dig a little deeper to to get a better understanding, right? You need to consider the original languages. You need to consider the author. You need to consider the audience. You need to consider the, the context of what's going on around. You've got to dig a little deeper in some passages of Scripture to really get the essence of, of what the author is saying. Not so much here. John meant what he said, he meant what he, and, he, and he said what he meant. He's simply reiterating what Jesus clearly taught in the Gospels, that we are to love one another. We, we, we see this coming from the lips of Jesus himself in John's gospel. verse 30, Chapter 13 and verse 34 of John's gospel, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And look at this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. How? By your love for one another. You don't have to raise your hand or answer me But do people come to that conclusion By the way they see you love other people That you're a disciple of Jesus Because see these are the hard truths of scripture These are the metrics that are in place To help us to put flesh on the bones Or or help us to discover Yeah does the, the profession that I make Line up with this lifestyle Jesus said in in John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Again in verse 17, these things I have commanded you. Why? So that you love one another. Notice the word John echoes in his epistle, this word commandment. How's that? Try that on for size. We don't like anybody commanding us to do anything. Right, especially in this culture. Don't you tell me what I need to do. What a strong word this word commandment is. That's what John says, look, beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. It's such a strong word and you know what? It can bring some stuff up in us. You see, commandment is not an option. A commandment is not open to discussion. A commandment is not a suggestion. A commandment is not based on how I feel about it. A commandment has nothing to do with with what I think is fair or reasonable or equitable. Commandment is not even something that I, I necessarily need to agree with. It's something I just need to respond to. And you see, there's only one response that God accepts when he gives a command, and that is obedience. And you see, for the child of God, there is no other option. That is what we do as children of God. Now, do we fail? Do we drop? Absolutely. Right? We're, we're going we're to we're err. We're going we're to resort back to what we were. And It's, it's important that we come back to God and ask for forgiveness and repent of our sins, but but God doesn't lower the standard. He commands us. And notice the command. The command is to love. It doesn't sound like love can be very organic, very natural, if it's a response to a command, right? if i'm commanded to love despite how i feel about it cuz again i know maybe maybe you don't wrestle with this there's some people's hard to love and if you don't know what i'm talking about you might be that person <laughs> right there's some people who are just hard to love how i feel about that is irrelevant and so how i feel about it can it possibly be truly Love, if it's just a response to a command. You see, the, the, the problem is we wrongly define love because we're so quick to assign a feeling to it. Hey, I, I'd love you, but I just, I'm just sorry, I'm just not feeling it. That doesn't work. But that's not how the Bible defines love. It doesn't ignore or minimize feelings. But feelings aren't the substance of love. It's not what it's made of. If we want to fully understand love, we must consider where love originates from. We must look to the the creator of love. For love, John will say say later on, is not what God does. It's the very essence of, of who God is. God is love. And interesting, out of love he saved us. When we were the enemies of God he saved us. Jesus doesn't just love in the sense of it being a verb, but he's the very, very embodiment, the very essence of love. And we as his followers are commanded to follow the lead of our leader and love one another. And what he is being love. It ought to be demonstrated through the ones who profess to be identified with this God of love. And John will say that the one who does that is in the light. And his actions will manifest itself as being in the light. Look at verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother and abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Notice the connection here, the contrast here. The one who abides in the light, it says, therefore there's no stumbling. Our path is clear. Our destination is clear. The way in which God, the way in which we are to live our lives is clear as we are abiding in the light. But if we walk in darkness, it says we don't know where we're going. It's like that person trying to find the the bathroom light in the middle of the night when they're trying to stumble their way through, right? They stumble in many ways. They're so walking in darkness. Remember, last week we we used darkness and light as contrasts of of sin, which is what John did in that passage. But what he's saying here is not only is not loving your brother a sin, but it leads to other sins as well. Notice the darkness blinds his eyes that he keeps stumbling because he doesn't know where he's going. You see, listen, if I don't love my brother, I'm going to be that much more prone to be angry with my brother, which is going to create another whole area of sin in my life. And it has like a snowball effect if we are not operating and walking in love, then what ends up happening is we start walking in the flesh and everybody else then becomes a means to my end. But the call of the scripture to the child of God is to walk in the light as he is in the light, right? Right? We ought to walk in love. And so, God gives us one another to see clearly. You see, as we're walking in the light, we're expressing love towards one another. And as we're expressing and living in love with one another, and please get past the whole, this like, you know, mushy, cushy, kumbaya moment. That's, that's not what love is all about. But it's about living for one another, dying for one another, extending ourselves and preferring one another, putting other people first, just as Christ modeled for us. I am more convinced than ever that it is impossible to truly develop into the man or woman of God that God has designed us to be when we're disconnected from one another. As I said before, we are in union with one another. That's the way God has designed for us to live and operate and live out our lives. And if we're ever going to fire in all cylinders as the people of God, we need to recognize that God has given us one another to encourage one another, to love on one another, to learn from one another, to serve one another, To sharpen one another, the list goes on and on and on. Why? Because the only way in which I can demonstrate my love for God, my service for God, is the way in which I love and serve one another. That's why the scripture refers to us as the body of Christ, members of one another. Oh, that we would come to the realization and the understanding of how important the church is. Not the organization, but the organism, the living, breathing body of Christ. I said last time, you know, when the church of God gathers together on a Sunday morning, it is the only time where the, the physical manifestation of God's presence is in the room because we bring the body of Christ, the life of God, into the gathering with one another. It is so profound. And yet, sometimes we... We don't realize the significance of the body. You know who knows that also? Satan knows that. That's why there is such intentionality from the enemy to cause disunity and division. Because a divided body becomes a dysfunctional body, and a dysfunctional body becomes a destructive body. Which is the exact opposite of what God has designed for the church to be. That's why we see the command to love one another. We see it woven all throughout the scriptures because it's God loving one another through you. How many have experienced those moments where somebody came and just came alongside you and said the right word or gave the right embrace at the right time and it was no different as if God himself held you? That's the church. That's the beauty of the church. It's God loving one another through us. It's a beautiful design that God has given to us. And so if you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling disconnected, if you're you're feeling unloved, engage in the body of Christ and experience the love of God manifest through the people of God. Imperfect people of God, by the way. Equally as imperfect as you and me, but following hard after the one who is altogether perfect. John points out what we're commanded to love. We are to love one another. Now, the reality is that there are stages of growth for every Christian. There are degrees of maturity that are evident in the life of every believer and they will be evidenced in our ability to love one another, right? Nobody hits this like, you know, first time out. No one's a rock star in this area, right? Sometimes I, I look and I think, oh Lord, you know, please do work in my own heart. This is just, and sometimes I'm just not thinking right or putting other people first. I, I, there's, there's some of the old stuff that works its way in. Can anybody identify with that at all? Am I the only one in the room, right? I mean, we're, we, are, we, are, we are a mess on its way to a message, right? A message of grace and love and mercy and sanctification. But God gives us one another. And we're all at different levels of maturity. And we need to give grace and have patience for one another in the same way that people have had to extend grace and patience to us. And that's kind of what John is about to... I think John knows he just dropped the truth bomb. Right, I mean, you hear these words, it's kind of like, I really stink here. I really, I, like, oh man, I, you know, I want to, but I'm just not there. But look, look what he says here in this, in, in in these follow up verses to this. It almost sounds like it's out of context, but it's it's really not. He just lays out for us what it means to love one another and how we are to love one another. Then he says this in verse twelve: I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. What John is doing Obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit John identifies three stages of growth And I love this He uses the Christian family As an example Because that's exactly what we are Now let me just say This isn't about age This isn't about gender He's just using a father A young man And little children To, to um, uh, present before us Stages of spiritual growth But it applies to everybody in this room And John is using the family as a picture of stages of spiritual maturity. He appeals first to the fathers. Who are they? They are the most mature. They have a deep knowledge of the eternal God. He says, I write to you, fathers, for you know him who is from the beginning. It's speaking of the the ones who are solid and strong and mature in the faith. And again, it's not just men. It's also, how many know we need equally and have godly women who know their father from the beginning, right? And so he's raising the awareness of the need for, for pillars in the church. And then he talks about young men. Those who, while knowing sound doctrine, haven't Experience the depths of maturity that the fathers have experienced. But they are clearly moving in that direction. They are growing. They are pursuing. They are being, they are being led by the father, fathers and they are learning as a result of that. He says about them, he says, look, he says, you guys, you overcame the evil one. You are strong in the word of God and the word of God abides in you. In other words, man, you're on your way. Keep going forward. such important roles and awareness of these roles within the body. And then we see him address the little children. I love this. This is the, that precious younger ones in the faith that have just kind of come in and recognized that they're a sinner in need of a savior and they've embraced Jesus and, and they're, on their, they're on a journey to growing and understanding the significance of all that it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so he's laying out for us these, these degrees of maturity. Now, there's one of two reasons why these descriptions of maturity are, are sandwiched between two things. Because the first thing, as we saw, we're commanded on the things that we are to love. And then momentarily, we're going to take a look at the things that we are commanded not to love. But sandwiched between the things we are to love and the things we're not to love, we see this call to maturity. We see these, these phases of spiritual maturity. There's one of two reasons why that that is inserted there. Either it's provided as a pass in the sense of saying, well, eventually I'll get there. I'm just, hey, I'm just a babe in Christ, and hey, I'm just doing the best I can, you know. Grace, 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 grace. And don't get me wrong, I, I love and cling to the grace of God. But when we use grace as an excuse and say, well, hey, I'm just a babe in Christ, yeah, but you came to Christ like 11 years ago. You shouldn't, listen, you shouldn't still be smoking. You shouldn't still be dealing with this stuff. I know I just hit a nerve. But you see, there's some things that we've we got we to recognize. We've got to let this go. We've got to grow in our walk, right? And you can't just say, well, I'm just a babe and cry. I'm just learning. Certainly that's not what he's raising the awareness for that towards. What John is presenting to us instead is a pathway of spiritual maturity. It is is a path to move from children to young men to fathers, and it's directly connected to our obedience of loving what God calls and commands us to love and not loving what God tells us not to love. And the plan and the goal and, and, and the process of sanctification is moving us from infancy onto full maturity in Christ. And so what John will present to us in this contrast of loves is that which we are commanded to love and that which we are commanded not to love and sandwiched between the two is this pathway, this acknowledgement that, listen, everybody's at different places in their spiritual journey. And we need to remember what John said in chapter two. Hey, I write these things that you might not sin. That's the goal, folks. Folks. The goal is to not sin. But if you do sin, because the reality is we will. If we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so we see this this healthy tension that the scripture presents. And so now John moves on to what we are commanded not to love. We are commanded to love one another. Obviously, we love God as in, and, and the way we extend our love to God is by extending love towards one another. And now look, we're, not, we're commanded not to love. Look at verse 15 of chapter two. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John hits them right in their comfort zone. Do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, the New Testament has three different meanings for the word world, and it's important to understand which world the author is referring to. Sometimes when the the word world is being used, it has to do with the, the physical earth that we walk on, that God made. Paul makes reference to that in Acts chapter 17 where he talks about the God who made the world and and everything in it. So it's it's speaking of the physical earth. Sometimes it's referring to the human world made up of all people. We see in John chapter 12 and verse 47 where Jesus said, I didn't come to the world but I didn't come to judge the world but to save the world. He's not speaking of saving the earth, saving the planet. He's speaking of saving people, those who comprise the world. Sometimes there's even two times, there's even times where both that word is used in the same text, like in John chapter one, in verse 10. It says, look, he was in the world, speaking about the physical place, and the world was made through him, yet the world, people, did not know him. Right, so we see again this word world being used in different ways. Now the warning from John chapter 15 to not love the world, he's not referring to not love mankind. He's not even referring to not loving the earth that God has given us and called us to be good stewards of. Instead he's referring to a third use of the word world and it refers to a spiritual system that is opposed to God and opposed to the kingdom of God. It is antagonistic to the things of God. It is a way of life that is viewed through a specific lens of thinking. For instance, when we talk about the the world of sports, or the world of finance, or we talk about the world of politics. Behind what we see in sports and that which we see in politics or see in finance, behind that is a system that we cannot see, and it is that system that keeps things going in its respective world. The world in the Bible is Satan's system for opposing the work of Christ on the earth. It is a system that is not concerned about the glory of God. It is opposed to the grace of God. It positions itself in contrast to loving others. In short, it stands in opposition to all that God seeks to do in his redeemed creation, you and me. And John points out what we're commanded to love and what we're commanded not to love It's about the object of our love. We are to love one another, and we are not to love the world, this world system. You see, it's important to understand because to the degree that you love something is the degree that you will hate that which pulls you from the thing that you love. Let me repeat that. To the degree that you love something is the same degree that you will hate that which pulls you from the very thing that you love. I want to go on record proudly and say, I love my wife. My love for Laura causes me to separate or hate anything that will get in the way and separate me from the love that I have for my bride. I hate pride because it gets in the way of my love for Laura. Sometimes it does. I hate selfishness because it, it creates barriers between me and the selflessness that I'm to present to my wife. By the grace of God, I want you to know I steer clear from all forms of pornography. I just want you to know that your pastor doesn't look at that stuff. I steer clear from it for a lot of reasons. Obviously, I have love for God, but I steer clear of it because it causes distance between me and the one that I love, my bride, so much. You see, my love for my wife creates in me a desire to separate myself from the things that will hinder my love for her. And here's what John is saying. Our love for the world, or love, our love of the world, separates us from our love for the Father. And our love for the Father separates us from our love for the world. Our love of the world separates us, gets in the way of our love for the Father. But, in beautiful contrast, our love for the Father separates us from our love for the world. You see, we can't love God and love the things that are contrary to God at the same time. And John is saying the true child of God loves not the world or the things in the world. Why? Because he loves God supremely. And you can't love God supremely and at the same time love that which hates God and goes against God. Folks this is where the rubber hits the road when it comes to Christianity. John is not saying anything new here. He's calling those churches in Asia Minor to consider how their lifestyles communicate what they believe and therefore what they love. He says in verse 16 look he says for all that is in the world here's what's in the world system. Here's what the here's how the here's how the world system operates. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Look, it's not from the Father, but is of this world. John is reminding the Christian of the way in which Satan, the ruler of this world's system, seeks to infiltrate and contaminate the biblical system that God, the Holy Spirit, incorporates into the life of those who are followers of God. We are to walk in the Spirit not in the flesh. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these, says John, are not of the Father, but is of the world. It's of this world system. It's opposed to God. What is the lust of the flesh? It it is a desire for physical pleasure. It is a drive, a prioritization, a pursuit of physical pleasure. The lust of the eyes, what is that? That is the desire for the things that we see that are not ours to have. Ultimately, it's covetousness on steroids, it's going after that which is not ours to behold. The lust of the eyes, talks about the, the pride of life. What is that? That's taking pride in the things that we do have, thinking that it's by our own hands that we have acquired all of this. And what it does is it elevates me above everybody else who doesn't have what I have. If we were to boil every temptation down, no, every temptation known to man down, it always falls within these three categories that are characteristics of the world system, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. If I had time this morning to unpack those, but think about that's what the drive of the world is, going after what they don't have, Comparing what they have to what other people have and defining those people accordingly. In short, it places the individual at the center of all things to be worshipped. Through physical pleasure, lusting for all the eye candy that they can see, and arrogantly pointing to themselves as the source of of all things it is idolatry it is worship of self everybody and everything becomes a means to my end and so you step over and on anybody necessary to go that, after that which you think is rightfully yours and can I tell you in the church we need to be really careful we don't creep into that because listen it's not wrong to have things the problem is when things have us Right When we're a believer, you move from an owner to a steward. You recognize you are a steward of everything God has placed into your hands. And we are to live our lives with open hands so that whatever God has entrusted into our care can be used for the furtherance of the kingdom. And listen, when God finds someone who will willingly live their lives with open hands, he will use that person to move the kingdom of God forward for the glory and kingdom of, and, and the glory of God. And so we need to be careful in the church and ask ourselves the question, what's my goals in life and why? I, you know, I got this nest egg. I want to build it and build. Why? Well, because I want to retire. Why? So I don't have to work. Why? So that I can have fun. Why? Like, is that all it is? We were made for something more than that. What we do with what we have and the time that we have ought to be lived and lived out for the glory of God. It's the world system who says you need to go after and acquire and get and grab what's yours. No. you Go hard after God. And listen, man, God will give according to his own sovereignty what he chooses to place into your life. He'll not give you more than, you, than, than, than he knows you can handle. Sometimes, we look and think, we want more, we want more. God's like, hey, that'll destroy you. Right? Some people are wired certain ways. And so God distributes the talents accordingly as he sees fit. What is it ultimately? It's a pursuit to satisfy the insatiable. That's what it is. This world that pursues all, they'll never be satisfied. It's like a mirage. They're going after it and it just keeps moving and moving and sadly, people spend their whole life and they don't realize that everything that they need is found in Christ and Christ alone. All of the fulfillment, all of the sense of purpose, all of the sense of value and dignity that God desires his people to walk in is found in Christ and Christ alone. That's why Jesus said, what does prophet profit a man if he gains the whole world? but loses his own soul. Let me wrap up these closing words in verse 16. Look, it says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father but is of the world and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides Forever. I like that. And the world is passing away along with its desires. You see, they remain desires. You know why? Because they never were fulfilled. But, John says, this isn't, this isn't negative commentary. Here comes, the, here comes the big important part that we need to get a hold of. He says, But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Abides forever. At the end of this command to not love the world comes the encouragement and the promise of life forever with God. A place where there'll be no desires because everything man needs will be found in God. Hey, we might live in this earth for a very short amount of time, 90 to 100, God bless you, as long as the Lord, right? Right? But we compare this life to eternity. I remember, maybe some of you remember, I had this, this long piece of rope one time. It was, it was probably three, 400 feet of rope. We wove it all throughout the sanctuary. And, and I put a little piece of uh, black tape on, on a part of the rope. And I said, I said, everybody hold up the rope and you saw, the, everybody remember this? No? I should do it again. Um, so everybody, I said, everybody hold up the rope and you saw this huge long piece of rope. And I said, "You see this little black piece of black tape That represents your life here on the Earth. The rest is all of eternity, and it doesn't end at the end of the 300 feet. It just begins. And you think, what's worth pursuing the pleasures of the world? Its not, What's worth it? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? John holds up these two loves, one directly in contrast to the other, as a metric. These things were written that you might know that you have eternal life. Here's how you'll know you'll have you have eternal life. What do you love? What gets your time? What gets your attention? What gets your finances? What gets your your calendar space? What gets your priorities? John is saying, listen, man, if you if you hate your brother, you're still in darkness. If you love in the world and the desires of the world, if that's what you're about, you're in darkness. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Such hope in these words from John, right? The one who does the will of God abides forever. There's such intimacy in that word, abide. It's the word that Jesus used to describe the relationship that he has with his disciples. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit because without me you can do nothing to abide in him. May our hearts reflect the one we love by the way we love one another in a way we don't love the world and its system. And as we do that, may that catapult our spiritual maturity from children to young men to fathers. Now you might be hearing this and going, okay, hey, listen, here's a problem, Pastor. I love some of this stuff like I genuinely love it I know I'm not supposed to love it I'm not going to raise my hand and say it's me but the reality is I love some of this stuff you know Solomon said sin is pleasurable for a season it's, it's I get it I get it so how do I stop loving that which is against God here's how you keep pursuing the heart of God. You keep fo- building on your love for God and your love for one another. And as Christ becomes your priority, as Christ becomes your all in all, as you respond to his pointing you to being a part of the body of Christ and woven into the, the, the body of Christ, your love for the things that are contrary to God will diminish more and more. Till perfection? Absolutely not. We're going to be working through stuff for the rest of our time while we're on this earth. But you know what? I'm not where I was. I'm not where I am I'm not where I want to be yet, but I'm walking and moving and pursuing the heart of Christ day by day by the glory and grace of God. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we would, um, every one of us would just be challenged by it. That, Lord, we'd seek to honor you and obey you in the application of these things. Lord, help us to identify those areas in our lives that, that we put too much priority on. The pursuit of things that pull us away from our pursuit of you. Lord, anything that gets in the way of our relationship, between us and you is idolatry. Help us to identify those things so that we might run from them and run to you. Thank you for the invitation to come and abide in the vine. Thank you, Lord, that we who were the enemies of God are now the people of God. And thank you that you who began a good work in us will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And so I pray your blessing upon each person here. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make these truths real and help us to apply it in every area of our life. In Christ's name we pray, amen.